Grace Gillians. Have you ever tried to lead a goat? If so, you'll know that it's futile. Goats don't like being led. Even if where you're leading them is great, like a fresh patch of blackberries or a paddock full of wild plums, it doesn't matter. If they sense you're trying to take them somewhere, that you have an agenda, they'll call it a conspiracy and dig their little cloven hooves into the clay. And they're surprisingly strong. Our crusty and beloved old goat Pip was an expert-level resistor. The moment she felt any pressure on the lead, any pulling or yanking or cajoling, she'd drop to her knees, flop to the ground and just lie there in Shavasana. Over the years, I found a better way to get a goat to go. What you do is hold the lead discreetly in your hand and walk beside the goat, letting them take the lead. When you do, you'll see their ears prick up, their nose drink the wind and their eyes glint with wild sovereignty. You're still offering gentle guidance, but you're not forcing the issue. You're not dragging them kicking and bleating. And it's not just a goat thing. Most humans don't like to be led either. We don't want to be told what to do, where to go or how to think. Just like goats, we want to forge our own paths and direct our own lives. And this, too, applies to storytelling. There's that classic adage of show, don't tell. Because it's really off-putting when a book or a film or a person comes at you with a motive, trying to persuade you of a message, trying to get you on board. It sets off my propaganda meter, that's for sure. And the reason I was thinking about all this, about the art and the ethics of storytelling, is because this week I'm chatting with someone who is steeped in that world, who shares stories for a living and has to navigate these tensions of showing and telling, of leading and letting, of having a message and also having faith in the audience to come to their own conclusions. Happen Films is one of the most powerful portals of inspiration in the sustainability space, not just trotting out the same old green living tropes, but laying new turf, sharing fringe ideas about how to care for land, be in community and live the change. I was stoked to sit down with one half of Happen Films, Jordan Osmond, now that he's back in Australia, asking him about his approach to filmmaking, what he's learned from the radical folks he profiles, and how he's putting these learnings into practice. While I was being nosy, I also quizzed him about how he earns a crust as a creative. Where does the money come from? What are his plans, if any, for accessing land? What does he see in humanity's future? Of course, Jordan's positivity is pretty clear in his directorial choices, but it's nice to hear directly from the man behind the lens. Because even though Happen Films' films are incredibly persuasive, leading us down the garden path, through a permaculture herb spiral and towards the food forest, I suspect we're all walking there together, side by side, even the filmmakers, even the goats. I'm Katie, this is Resilience. And I really hope you love this conversation with Jordan Osmond. How do you know when a film is ready? Um, when I can't stand to look at it anymore. <laughs> no, it's, de- it's definitely, it's, it's done when it feels like it's done, if that makes sense. Like the edit is, is done when you don't get bored watching any point. It feels tight. The story makes sense. It's in a good order. Um, the guy on our team, Nick, who we send 
the films too for feedback, doesn't come back with anything major, <laughs> that's when it becomes, um, yeah, ready to picture lock and then go to the rest of post-production. Yeah, it gets to a point where it's like, this is, this is good and it's um, nicely packaged mm-hmm. and yeah, it's something we're proud of to see go up on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. I heard that um, the process of creation can be a process of elimination. Like what can you take away until the thing that you're wanting to make still says, still conveys the message without all of the trimmings, without all of the noise? Is that a way that you work? Uh, yeah, I love that. Like um, I've always thought of cutting down an interview because normally <clears throat> I'll, you know, might shoot an hour and a half interview with somebody that gets turned into 10 minutes and so a lot of stuff gets cut away of course and a lot of good stuff gets cut away because you're just choosing a thread like okay what's this story going to be and then finding the gold that weaves together into that story and I've always thought of it as that like making a statue out of a piece of stone you know the, the block of stone is the full interview and then you're chiseling it away piece by piece to the final product, which is, um, yeah, the end film. And it's always, the first cut of a film is always too long. It's always like, if it's going to be a 10 minute film, it's always like, I don't know, 15 or 20. And then there's a process of watching it. Okay. What makes sense? What, what is necessary? And I really like that actually, that process of like, how short can we make this <laughs> and just having the absolute essence of this story without the fluff? Um, how do we get these points across in the most succinct and impactful way possible? And that's a really fun element of editing that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I definitely like that image of like sculpting something from a big slab of stone. Yeah. Yeah. And a question I often have when I'm watching your films and any documentary where the characters or the the talent, um, to use that terminology, seem so at ease and seem so ready to to kind of pour out their story. Like, how do you how do you put people at ease? How do you what is the work that goes into your films behind the scenes that um, allows folks to open up in the way that they do? Because you know, like I pressed record and then. I never know how to start these podcasts because I think something changes when I hit the record button and no matter how much we've spoken beforehand, something changes and there's a, a stiltedness that can come across and I'm not sure how to get past that. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely like I think half the job as an interviewer is to make people feel relaxed and it's interesting being on the receiving end of being interviewed because I'm much more comfortable in your position (laughs) than doing the speaking. Um, so it's been interesting to kind of reflect on that of, um, of how I do feel a bit nervous and what am I going to say? What are people going to think of what I'm going to say? And I'm understanding, you know, every, when I do do interviews and I'm on the receiving end, I do understand what people are feeling when I interview them. And, um, it comes down to, I think building a, as much of a rapport beforehand as you can and not going like straight into interviewing. Like, you know, we had a chat beforehand, we had a walk around to kind of ground here at Meliodora. That was, that was really great rather than just like straight out of the car in front of the microphone. Building trust with people is huge. And I think there's a real, it's something that I'll, a skill I'll probably be developing forever 
in directing is that uh, that building of trust and rapport with people because if people feel safe and they feel like you're listening then they'll keep talking like right now you're nodding as I'm speaking and it's really encouraging and I do that as well and I've had that feedback from people of like you know thank you for making it feel like you're really interested in what I'm saying because I genuinely am and I think if you look engaged and you want to hear what people are saying people generally love to talk like everybody's got a story to tell and having the opportunity to be on a in a film or on a podcast is really you know amazing for people and it's something I really love about making the films is that it does feel like an exchange a lot of the time we get to tell a story and make a film but the people in the film get to tell their story and express themselves and share with their community in the world their ideas and what they're doing so it does feel really beneficial um, but it comes yeah at a foundation of of kind of trying to be on the same page and building a rapport with people and because our films go up on YouTube which is so accessible to anyone with an internet connection a lot of people that we film with have seen our films before so they know what we're about the the style the content and they kind of get it and that really helps as well with um, if people know in the interview what you're looking for that just helps them massively rather than kind of stabbing the dark at different ideas throwing things out and seeing like okay you're going to nod at this one oh yeah all right mm-hmm. <laughs> so getting people on the same page building trust and rapport with them is huge um, but sometimes people just can't relax and I've had that before and it's it's really tricky and I understand it as well because you can get so in your head about what you want to say to the world and you can put so much pressure on yourself to be succinct and an elegant speaker because you listen to all these other podcasts with people who just speak beautifully and you you want to be like that and you can kind of trip yourself up so right now I'm trying to not think too much about it because that's what I want people to do um and I didn't write any notes or anything because I don't like when people do that because it's like the conversation is what you're aiming for. Yeah, yeah. And every single time when I sit down with someone, I've sent them questions in advance. I've written those questions down on a little bit of paper in case I blank out and I need to reference. But I actually find, as you were saying, once you're in the conversation, it's like there's a container and I don't want to break that by looking at my notes or even like looking at the screen and how it's tracking and how the audio is doing, because I feel like it interrupts something that's being generated in the conversation. But yeah, I feel that tension of wanting to curate questions or curate the story and direct it in a certain way. And then this renegade approach to just opening it up, open slather style and asking, you know, like a question that I love that um, my favorite podcaster, Manda Scott from Accidental Gods, she always opens her interviews with um, what's alive for you. She asks that to the other person and I feel like it disrupts this idea that I'm coming to the interview as the interviewer and the host with an expectation of what wants to be said or what should be coming out and it's actually just handing it back to the guest and saying, what's got your attention? What's got your curiosity? Like maybe you just did a PhD in like rock communication and sentience and you really want to talk about that but I'm asking you everything but you know like is there something in your life that's just so so juicy and interesting that's happening for you at the moment that you wanted to talk about off the top of the interview no I tried to come to it with no kind of expectations I did have I did think about it a bit beforehand because I don't want to just 
sit here and babble. <laughs> so I, I like, yeah, putting thought into it. But I think like you were saying before about kind of not wanting to break that connection by looking at the audio or your questions. It's the same thing. Like I always have questions written down in an inter- for an interview, but I try to go as long as possible without like, it should be absolute plan B to look at those because if you do, you kind of, it becomes more of an interview and you're trying to hold this illusion of a conversation, even though it's hard when I've got the big camera with a microphone on it, there people are wired up and sitting in this kind of unnatural form. If you can maintain eye contact and look engaged and, and, speak to what's alive for people and kind of play on that it can really bring out some amazing conversations Mm -hmm. yeah and I've learned too that keeping it simple is really important and sometimes the questions that feel the simplest and the most you know the basic information about someone in their life is what really really um, connects us to those people and their stories and you know my curiosity and something I haven't really asked you yet um, even though we've spent a bit of time talking is when when did you start Happen Films and why? Mm. Yeah it was very much going with yeah a natural kind of curiosity and and feeling of wanting to do something meaningful. What really changed for me and set me down this path of um, of permaculture sustainability you know thinking differently about the world and the different crises we're facing was watching documentaries. So when I was probably 18 or 19, I, um, I was actually earlier in high school, we watched um, Bowling for Columbine. It was a Michael Moore documentary and I just loved it. And then I went out and found the, the DVDs of his other films and, um, and then just spent, yeah, I was just became really engaged by these films because they just kind of exploded my mind and opened my mind up to what was happening in the world. And I remember after watching Fahrenheit 9-11, Michael Moore's film about the Iraq war, I remember watching that and just at the end of it thinking, I think I might even said to my mum, I want to be a documentary maker. I I just remember feeling so impacted, like the fact that a story could make me like think about the world in this way. And then the same thing happened when I watched Food Inc. about the food system. And then that kind of, yeah, blew my mind about what I was eating and it got me thinking around that. And so this this whole like watching documentaries then got me reading and watching other videos and set me down this path. And I was into photography at the time, just like borrowing my grandpa's camera and taking photos of landscapes and echidnas and kangaroos and things. And I really enjoyed that. And um had played around with a bit of video stuff, but I I thought I wanted to combine this kind of desire to contribute something good to the world, like something meaningful, because I'm watching all these documentaries about how terrible the world is. I wanted to contribute something good. And that was quite a vague notion because I didn't really know what that was. I just like something sustainable. So then, you know, I was looking at different projects that I could film and um, and highlight. And I taught myself filmmaking and I transferred some of the photography skills I'd learnt and learned how to edit and things. Um, uh, but it wasn't until 2015 that I made my first film. Um, it's called A Simpler Way. Uh, it's about a, a community in uh, Gippsland, east of Melbourne, where 
it was 10 of us living on this property for the course of a year exploring what it would what it might look like to live with a one world footprint like if we consume the resources of one planet i kind of started happen films just before that after i met um samuel alexander who is um professor at melbourne uni and he was involved in this project out uh in gippsland and i was like can i come and film it he said yep all right and then a feature length film was born out of this kind of crazy idea of just like i just had this burning desire to make a film and to make it about something good for the world um and so yeah started happen films it wasn't a thing yet um registered the domain name and made a brand and then yeah went there and and filmed that film and that's um where i met antoinette who's the other half of happen films and yeah along with sam alexander we produced this film and that was happen films first feature and during that year we put out a few short films as well and just like seeing the reception on youtube was amazing just the beautiful comments and um, the number of views it was getting. It was like something people really felt like it looked like people needed these stories and it um, felt really good to be making them. And it was during that year that I came across permaculture. I met David Holmgren and I interviewed all these like amazing people and that continued to just open my mind up even further to uh, some of these different ways of doing things and um it just kind of hasn't stopped since then for the last almost nine years next month wow yeah well what did it look like living the one one planet footprint yeah the point of it was to be an experiment and so we grew a lot of our own food we bought organic food in bulk of things we couldn't grow Um, we built tiny houses out of recycled materials and that was all great but the most challenging part was the social dynamic of living in a community especially in this kind of people joked it was like eco big brother because there were like 10 of us only two people knew oh there were one couple was there and then two of the um, people knew each other but the rest of us were strangers just showing up to this like five acre property in Gippsland just ready to experiment and I was filming it um, which was an interesting dynamic as well of like living this challenging, at, at times challenging reality while trying to film it. And it being the first film I'd ever made, it was that was a challenge as well. But it's such an amazing like learning experience, not just for filmmaking, but also just living in community. Like I moved out of my parents' house to go live here. I was living in my like panel van ute for a few months and a caravan and tiny houses. So like personally, it was a huge experience but also the social side of things, learning to live with other people was amazing and challenging. And that was basically the main learning of the year. It was like, if we're going to live more communally, the social side of things has to take priority because it's fine to grow food or build structures, but if we can't get along, we can't communicate or have a shared vision, then none of that stuff really matters and it can't, sustain itself so that was um we gave it a go and we demonstrated some cool practices and the film has done really well online and people have been inspired by it so it was a success but it was um yeah a challenging year Mm. what did you learn about social dynamics what would you apply to that situation now in hindsight i learned the value of facilitation we had a um a facilitation 
ending to the year or um, a facilitator came in and we kind of like rounded out the year and that was great and it was like well, we should have done this at the beginning um, there is something to be said about having natural leaders in a group we had we kind of came to it and no one was the leader and so we're kind of all figuring out like what we're doing or who's doing what and that just slowed things right down I think probably most of all a shared vision is the biggest thing we did have a shared vision but it was quite vague and you can interpret a lot everyone kind of interpreted that vision in a different way and that created conflict during the year like some people didn't want to use power tools and some of us did because it's like we just need a toilet um <laughs> and so everyone had different priorities and expectations for the year well there, yeah there were there were differences of like what we were trying to do and achieve um and different ways to go about it so i think shared vision and having processes around when there are conflicts all these things that like people who have tried communities or live in communities currently all know and have um and have worked on um i think having those in place first and not trying to make it up as you go would have just saved a lot of time and would have made the project more successful but that's all good in hindsight <laughs> mm, yeah you mentioned the power of those documentary films you were watching in your earlier years and I know so many people who cite Food Inc as that cornerstone documentary that kind of changed their trajectory in thinking at least and eating um, so it's one thing to be soaking up those images and stories and applying them to your life but what does it feel like to be the person telling those stories or kind of bringing those stories to life and you've been doing that now for nearly a decade like what's the impact on you what have you absorbed from the films that you've been making? Mm. Great question. <laughs> I think I probably would have asked something similar because, uh, yeah, it's that like that that personal journey that we try to reflect in the films. Um, yeah, I can see parallels in my own life as well. It's almost hard to see how it's affected me because it has been my life for the last, yeah, nearly 10 years. And my personal growth as a person and my understandings of the world have happened alongside these learnings of, um, of filming with different people. It, it definitely has been an education for me. And I kind of see like when we make a film, it's, it's something that like I don't know. I've got a general idea around it. I think that's the ones I'm most excited about is when I don't know like exactly what the film's going to be or what in what the story is or what the what the learning is going to be but it's um I know enough about it that it's I know it's something that I want to tell and then going into it it's like a learning journey for me and then the film is sharing that learning with the world and I really like that kind of framing of it because that's why I'm still interested in making films just because it's a continual learning journey and then the more you learn the more you know how much you don't know of course and so it's definitely like yeah every person that I've filmed with I think has impacted me in some way and I've taken something away and um, it has shaped how I live and how I think about the world and I still yeah it's just kind of like part of who I am now is is are these interactions I've had with people and I feel so yeah it's a massive privilege and I feel so yeah blessed to be like have kind of an access pass to these amazing people like probably other filmmakers or photographers or 
podcasters out there know this of like if you want to interview someone it's kind of like a golden ticket to go hang out with them and it's it's probably like half the reason I make the films is just <laughs> being able to hang out with cool people it's amazing what people agree to yeah yeah and crazy situations that like a couple of years ago um we filmed in a prison because they were growing prisoners were growing food in there and I'm like I'm inside a prison right now this is so crazy just places that you'd never well, you hope you'd never be <laughs> um you get kind of access to and people you get to spend time with who are really busy I get to have three days filming with them and get to hang out and learn from each other it's um yeah, it's one of the reasons I love making these films. Mm. How do you find these people? Because in in your films, there are these larger-than-life characters. I'm especially thinking of In Fools and Dreamers, and I forget his name, but he just sticks with me. It's like this little, little part of my heart that's given over to this gentleman in a shack on the side of a mountain who does everything analogue. And, you know, I think he issues technology for the most part, and that story I carry around and it must inform my behavior in some in some way how did you find him how do you find the people uh whose stories you bring to life yeah yeah that film you're talking about is uh fools and dreamers and the guy's name's Hugh Wilson it's so funny that film is by far our most popular not necessarily oh it is it is now actually view wise nearly on four oh, million really? four million views hmm. um but it's like it's the film that people know us by. It's like oh, you know, happen films, and they're like, huh? And then you, oh, have you seen Fools and Dreamers? And they go, oh yeah, Fools, Fools and Dreamers. It's amazing how that film just like reached so many people, and I know why because like, Hugh is such an amazing person, and what he and his team have done are, is incredible, and speaks to so many people. And we were just so lucky, really, to find that film. It's one of my favorite films we've made. We had 10 days up there at Hinawai Reserve filming and we found him through word of mouth. And oh, actually we had a vague notion that he was doing something up in the hills there and kind of heard a little bit about him because he does put out a newsletter and there has been a few articles about him. Um, but it was somebody approaching us saying, hey, we, do you want to make a film about Hugh? And we're like, yep, <laughs> he sounds great. And um um, we, yeah, made, made this half an hour film called Fools and Dreamers. And I think the word of mouth films, I mean, most of them are through word of mouth now, actually, now that I think about it in the early days, it was like, who's got a website or an Instagram page. But then once you start meeting people and, um, talking to them, they just tell you about other people in their community or, um, say, Oh, you should check out this person. And, they're actually the best ones because not everybody has an Instagram page who's doing something interesting. <laughs> Hugh Wilson definitely doesn't. He doesn't have a computer. <laughs> he writes everything by hand. And if you send him a letter or you send him a $5 donation, he's going to write back a thank you note. And um, he's, yeah, he's a character that def has definitely lived with me as well, his story and, um, and who he is. And just that notion of stories living with us is so interesting and I think just yeah just the whole kind of science of storytelling or history of storytelling and how it affects us is so interesting as well because it's something like we're not doing anything new like yeah making documentaries on YouTube is a modern thing but it's just another form of storytelling that humans have been doing since we could speak mm. but it is cultural too and I don't know if you um 
have looked into this or think about it, but I often wonder what is my cultural, um, the indoctrination that I've experienced as a kind of Disney-raised millennial um, needing stories to have an arc, you know, like a beginning, a middle and an end and conflict and resolution and happy ending and, you know, that's not every story and that's not every culture and like in Japan and the reason I love Japanese and Korean fiction and cinema is because it can be this meandering thing or a simple slice of life or there are so many different ways to tell a story. Have you experimented with different kind of storytelling devices or do stories as you're saying earlier just unfold how they will as you're making the films? Like what are your thoughts on storytelling in general? One of the reasons I love documentaries is because you don't know how it's going how it's going to end like every film it's like this is what it is probably going to look like here's like the wide range of like what we're trying to achieve but you never know exactly what the story is going to be or how it's going to look so it's interesting in that way versus a narrative film where every shot is planned out and you're going by a script i don't know what people are going to say in the interview i hope it's good <laughs> and then i hope it makes sense when we piece it together later on um, and that's what, yeah, that's like, I really love that about documentary making and that traditional Western narrative arc of like the hero's journey is really interesting, but yeah, it's also interesting to know of other, um, story threads or story arcs that don't adhere to that, um, yeah, having grown up in this culture as well, I'm very much like, yeah, aware of that, that hero's journey. And I think it's super valuable. Like it does work. That's why all the big movies follow it. It's because it speaks to something in our brain that just works psychologically. But I think it's limiting if that's all we do, or we try to force a story through this preconceived, these preconceived stages, especially with documentaries, because there's not always enough drama to create this crisis point in act beginning of act three or whatever. And you're not going to force, or well, if you're ethical about documentary making, you're not going to force something uh, to happen that isn't realistic. So unless it just happens to unfold perfectly and, and you can kind of squeeze it within this, this framework. Great. Uh, like if, but if that doesn't happen, then you're going to have to find a different way of piecing together that story. And that's what most of our films are. They're not a narrative arc like that. Um, Fools and Dreamers isn't a narrative arc like that. So you could kind of like piece together little bits. There's definitely a structure to the films that makes sense. It's like you need to know who the person is at the beginning so you care about what they're doing later on. It's like <laughs> there's there's some kind of just logical things that make sense. And there's kind of a, not a formula, but there's like a a flow that most of our films follow and that we like and people seem to like. I suppose like the one film where I've really tried to follow more of that traditional story arc is Ben and Bertha. That's a film we, we put out uh, in 2023. And it's, I probably say it's about every film, but it's one of my favorite films we've ever made. Uh, partly because of that, um, we filmed it as it was unfolding, this project, as the drama was happening, which apart from A Simpler Way, that first feature film, nothing's ever been filmed like as it's unfolding. It's always been like after the fact. So I was really excited to do something like as it went and documenting the highs and lows. And so like 
just like personally as a filmmaker, that was a really fun project and I found that really rewarding and I really enjoyed thinking about, okay, how could Ben's story fit into this more traditional story arc? And it did. We, we'd made, we made it do that and I'm really proud of that and I think it's a great film because of that, because of that story arc because it works. Um, Are you saying you sabotaged Ben at different points of the process so that there was a bit more drama? Yeah, we just like undid a few bolts in the machine so it would break and then we, (laughs) yeah, stood off to the side, yeah, saying, here we go, yep, camera's rolling. Um, But it was was kind of... Ben being the person he is made that film because he was able to articulate his journey. A different person, like, we probably wouldn't have made a film about because, like, they wouldn't have been able to sh- potentially share it in the same way. But because Ben could talk about the highs, he could, you know, describe the lows and he was um, very articulate at telling his story, it made it work. And then there were all these, like, fortunate things where, yeah, some stuff didn't work when their mach- them and the machine was being developed, um, which created great drama in the, in the film. And it's not like we're creating drama for the sake of it, but um, stories need not conflict. That's like the the traditional term for it is you have conflict and that's what creates an interesting story. I've heard a friend describe it as interest. There's something, there's some kind of tension there. Um, and that's where like the good stuff happens because that's where you can explore different themes and those themes that speak to us as humans. And I think that's why that traditional story arc makes sense is because it speaks to like our human journey and psychology. And when someone's having, they're, they're putting their life energy and their dreams into making something happen and it fails, we can empathize with that. And that's all filmmaking is, is trying to get people to feel something. Um, so all art is, I suppose, is is trying to invoke emotions in people and that's what good films do. It makes it, it makes us feel things. And when we can feel low and then feel high, we get a contrast and that's where we go on a journey as a viewer watching it. And that's partly why we think a film is good because it made us feel something. And so when we can yeah, empathize with characters uh, and, and do that, it's, it creates for a really rich story. And we were lucky that Ben and Bertha did follow that trajectory. And there was a point where it was like, I mean, we didn't know the machine, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched Ben and Bertha, the machine works at the end. We didn't know it was going to work or like we needed to wrap up filming. We'd been shooting it for like eight months and it was like we can't afford or we don't have the time to keep shooting it. So it was like it had to kind of wrap up. And there was a point it was like if this doesn't work, we're going to have to make that part of the story and it's not going to be a happy ending of yay. Um, and that would have been okay as well because there's learning to be had in that and that's a different story but it's still valid. As you were speaking, I was thinking of just how metaphorical <laughs> these creative projects can be and how much they relate to our lives as the people, I guess, playing with the ideas and making something out of them. I'm wondering if you turn the camera back on yourself and you were filming your own life and your own whatever you know journey you're undertaking what are the points of tension or interest what what would you say your biggest struggles have been in this sustainable life way that you've adopted i think trying to do anything different in the world that we live in that you've always 
it's always going to be challenging. And there's always been a tension between, well, even just like the fact of filmmaking is there's a lot of conflicts there. We're using cameras that have heavy uh, um, precious metals in them that are made in China. We try to buy secondhand when we can. Um, and so there are kind of ethics built into this, but there's, there's always, um, always conflict in it. We upload to YouTube, which uses the internet, which is run on coal-fired power. Um, and part of me, you know, in the past, I've thought about this of like, oh, I just, I just don't want to have anything to do with it. I just want to live without electricity in a cabin in the mountains. <laughs> Using the technology that we have today to change to change our world has a place that's not to say we should just do anything you know we should just constantly you know fly around the world because we need to because we're doing something good or we need to use heavy machinery all the time because we're you know digging dams and swales or whatever like there is a kind of a limit to it but i think there's there is something to like even right now we're you know using this equipment to tell these stories but um like with the films i feel like they are worth it like the cost of making them to the world at the moment i think they're worth it just through seeing the impact that they have the comments we receive and the feeling like they're contributing something better so there is a cost but i feel like it's worth it and and yeah that that also extends to kind of yeah just life in general it's always a challenge to live your values in the society we live in because it's not set up to make that easy and um, it's definitely been a journey and I think it will continue to be a lifelong journey of working more towards my values but I'm always trying to work towards those and um, it's so important to me to to live as close as I can to those values and the ethics I don't just want to make films because it's fun and um, other people can do that. It's it's really important that I'm trying to live this message as well. And I mean, if I wasn't making films, I'd be living this way anyway. So it's just what feels right and that's what I'm working towards. But um, yeah, I, you know, I get around in a diesel-powered van to make films and that feels like something that is worthwhile at the moment. But there's definitely a limit to that. I'm not just going to drive constantly just for the sake of it because I can kind of justify it because I'm doing something good um I try not to fly but I do sometimes when I have to and yeah I think it's really interesting this kind of this tension point it's like with the story this is where the interesting tension happens where it's there's this kind of gray area of um being a hypocrite on the way to integrity um and and working towards something better and um, yeah, I think it'll be a lifelong journey, but it, it feels good. And um, I feel like I'm, I'm on that path of, yeah, living, living more aligned with um, the world I want to see. Maybe the hypocrisy and that feeling that dissonance is a necessary ingredient for the alchemy, like um, to really transform things and feeling that's important, the discomfort. Mm. And I think there's definitely a place... Well, I think, yeah, you know, diversity of responses is crucial and it's what needs to happen because not everybody is going to tomorrow move to, you know, a two-acre property and grow their own food. Like, 
it's just not going to happen. So we're going to, as we're living through this time, as systems are falling apart and we're heading for a different world, we're in this transition period. So we need to make use of the, the things that we have at the moment to kind of help us get through this time. And if it's, if it's worthwhile to um, use the car to do, to do this thing because it's, you know, it's needed for a project on the land, then yeah, great. Like if you need to use the internet to make podcasts that tell a good story, then, then do that. Um, I think trying to be too pure about it is just self-defeating and can lead to burnout. And it's probably why a lot of people don't even try to start living in a different way because they think I can't do it perfectly. So why even try? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I like showing the embarrassing stuff. And that's why I kind of smack my hand a little bit when I'm editing these podcasts too heavily, because I think there's something in, um, offering the imperfections and the rough edges to help invite people in rather than create a facade, like an impenetrable wall around these alternatives. And I don't think it's helpful to present illusions um, around yeah, what something involves or entails, but that's a fine line as well because people love aspirational things and, you know, pretty landscapes and gardens and, yeah, I don't know how to solve that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose the our films kind of do that as well, like highlighting these, like, exceptional examples of permaculture properties or radically simple lives um, but I kind of think about it like highlighting, highlighting the ex- extremes can, it, it can show like the extent of where you can get to, but it's, it's not saying everybody has to be there. Like, I'm hugely inspired by a guy named Ethan Hughes in the States who lives in a, um, who was living in a community without electricity, but now is living, uh, I think on a family homestead with similar values no electricity and there's um a great if i can shout out another podcast there's a great <laughs> conversation series with him uh where he's you know he's on his landline phone that's like the only technology he's got like modern technology and he yeah i listened to a podcast with him back in 2015 and it was yeah pretty life-changing there have been a few of these kind of key moments of like things i've read or people have met where it's been I can remember at remember that moment, and this was one of them of just hearing how radically simple he lived, and I'm still inspired by him, even though I don't know if I'll ever live without electricity. I know there's huge conflicts in that, and I think a lot of time I spend a lot of time thinking about renewable energy and the issues we're facing around resources, and I don't know the answers, um, but there's something worthwhile in hearing the story of somebody going to that extreme even if you don't do it yourself even if you go half the way it's better than not doing anything mm-hmm. and it can it can hearing those like or seeing those ex, um exceptional examples can provide the motivation to start on a path where even if it's yeah you can you can start doing small things without needing to go full in the deep end um, move move to the country and grow your own food because that's not realistic either for people and um, yeah some people will just never begin trying to do anything different if that's the illusion that we um, put out there is this is what it means to live sustainably yeah yeah I love that idea that kind of the capillary action of someone up ahead that kind of pulls us all along or you know if you want to get the goats into a new paddock you take one 
and the others can kind of hear it munching on the lusher pastures and they'll eventually like mosey their way there. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, can I ask a somewhat taboo and off, off script question? I mean, you don't have to answer. Lay it on me. Um, I'm really interested how you earn a crust and how you navigate the tension between like needing to make an income and needing to buy certain things, but also being deeply interested in like a, a frugal and degrowth style way. Um, how do you do it? Like, are you funded purely through donation and Patreon or what does that look like in any, in any way you're comfortable telling us? I think a lot of creatives and artists um, are interested in this, in this area. Mm. No, I'm super happy to talk about this because it's really interesting and I get asked it all the time as well because people are like, how do you do this? You're putting out films for free. How does that make sense? Uh, and it's always such a barrier for creative people as well. Um, and that's, yeah, I feel so lucky that we have been able to make a, a living doing this and have been doing it for so long. Um, so long relatively to my 29-year-old life. <laughs> um, but in the beginning, it was very much like, smell of an oily rag like no money like we made a simpler way the feature film for eleven thousand dollars which is unheard of for any other feature film normally it would probably be half a million dollars to make a feature documentary uh and we could do that because it was like our yeah, first one we didn't pay ourselves to do it it was like just getting something done and putting it out there and seeing what happens and when people ask me like creative creative advice around around this is just to start just put stuff out there and don't worry about trying to raise a huge amount of money to just begin because that's always going to be a barrier and you'll probably get burnt out trying to raise the funds and never do it it's better to just get stuff out there find an audience and then build support from that and that's what we did is we started putting out these short films they were doing well in the beginning, we'd earn like $200 a month on YouTube and that like could buy a, a one terabyte hard drive every now and again. I used to delete the editing files because I, I only had one hard drive and I couldn't store everything on there. And the footage as well from early films, I don't have that anymore because like we couldn't afford another hard drive. <laughs> so now it's sometimes a pain when I need to like someone asks for a certain export of an earlier film. It's like, sorry, I can't, like they're gone. <laughs> We only had two terabytes. Um, so, yeah, there was a few years of that, like, really kind of, like, doing other work as well to make it make it work. But um, early on, we started to get a few donations, did a small crowdfunding campaign um, that only raised, like, $5,000, but it was enough to get going. And then small donations from people have been a constant over the nine years and it's just been amazing and that like we're so grateful that people still contribute to us and uh, on Patreon and Patreon's always been a since I think 2017 has been a a good kind of foundation uh, for us but it's and yeah of course YouTube ad revenue as well is part of the mix which is if we're talking about conflicts is another one because we don't control what ads get shown. You might get an ad for KFC or you might get an ad for Greenpeace. Like it's uh, totally variable um, depending on you as a viewer. And we'd love to turn those off one day, but at the moment they do provide too much of the revenue pie for the year to, um, so yeah, it's another thing of like, yeah, it feels worthwhile to take that money to invest it into films to keep these messages going. 
But um, a few years ago, we made a contact with a philanthropist, um, a philanthropic brothers uh, from the Namaste Foundation, and they helped us finish our feature film, uh, Living the Change, with a donation of 20,000 New Zealand dollars. And that was like life-changing. Could not believe they would gift us that much to finish this film. It was like, it was so amazing. And somebody else gifted me a MacBook Pro that they were ordering like, I don't know, 30 for their business that year. And they're like, oh yeah, I'll take another one onto your order so you could edit the film and just send it back in after you're done. And he like never wanted it back. Um, and that was like, that allowed me to edit Living the Change because I didn't have a fast enough computer. So like, and we could only do that because we had we were putting stuff out there and building an audience and making those connections and people finding our portfolio, if you want to put it like that, uh, and resonating with it. And then when we asked for help, that came in. And yeah, one of the one of the helps that came in was the Namaste Foundation, which is now the Byram Trust. And they uh, last, at the beginning of last year, committed uh, gifting us 100,000 New Zealand dollars for three years, which is just like, mind-blowingly amazing and is basically like the foundation of how we run and it's a I'd say it as a as a gift because it is a gift it's a total gift they don't ask for any input in the films or ask for anything in return it's just like we love what you're doing keep doing it and yeah so that's um that carries us forward in uh as a solid foundation and then there's yeah youtube ads which is variable and patreon and everything uh in between but yeah it's a I think that mix, that variation is really important as well. It's not just one place that we get our funds. Uh, it's like a, yeah, a big uh, different slices of the pie that make it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I suppose while we're on the topic, might as well dig a little bit deeper. Um, you mentioned as we were walking back up the gully past the property that we're on, which is Meliodora, David Holmgren and Sue Dennett's um, 30 plus year old permaculture demonstration site that they paid seven and a half thousand dollars for back in the day and it was covered in blackberries and nobody wanted it but David saw the immense potential of this land but we were talking about this at lunch the other day I think the maybe at the time that they bought it people were working for it was maybe one or two years or something to be able to save enough to buy a home and now of course that's increased I don't know 20 or 30 fold and you mentioned that you'll never buy land or you'll never be able to afford to buy land. And myself and another household who live on the property in exchange, I think I can speak for all of us, we're not squirrelling money away with the intention to leap from here into property ownership. I just don't see how I'll ever make that kind of money. Um, So you making that comment um, piques my interest and I'd love to ask what you see in the future for yourself if it isn't following that expected kind of path of land ownership what's the alternative for you Hmm. yeah so many people around our age that dream of owning land has kind of dissolved away and I mean then maybe there would be a potential like to go down the route of getting a a mortgage and but it's just I'd have to orient my life around doing that and I'd have to compromise so many things I'd probably have to get a second job as well and I wouldn't be able to make films as much and I don't want to own land that much. Like filmmaking is my like priority uh, work-wise. 
and I don't want to compromise on that to to try to yeah raise a ridiculous amount of money <laughs> to enter the property market and then be stuck to that for decades as we head into financial difficulties uh, global financial difficulties and resource constraints and everything it just feels like a really uncertain future to be getting heavily into debt uh, I'd much rather have the freedom to not be in debt and that's the advice I hear from <laughs> experts like um, I've interviewed in the past who say basically get out of debt it's one of the biggest things you can do so not getting into debt is a great place to start um, I have been in you know, small amounts of debt interest free from friends and family and stuff in the past you know, small amounts and that's definitely helpful and that's a huge privilege as well um, but in terms of trying to raise yeah trying to buy a big property myself or anything it's not on my mind and so the idea of um, sharing land with other people to yeah to have access to land is, is one maybe yeah buying into land with people if you know 10 of us get together to put a small amount in to buy land or just even like a just living on on land in a tiny house um i love the idea of the tiny house because it is some form of security in an asset that you can move around and it has value and <laughs> while you're using it it's, of course it's your house it's shelter and everything and so that is that you can get a certain amount of security from that without needing to own the land under it um but the biggest thing i want is to feel belonging to a region to a piece of land which having moved around and having lived in lots of different places over the last few years um i don't have that connection where we're sitting here in a landscape that you know i grew up in and so i have a connection to and that feels really beautiful and um i'm really enjoying that and yeah i'd really like to cultivate that in some way and i'm interested in exploring and yeah, talking to people about how they do that without need, needing to own it. I think in our culture, we've got this idea of we need to own things to have security. And I definitely get that. And there's a certain amount of security that comes with it. But then I've also seen examples of people living in shared situations on land that have a lot more security than if you had a mortgage. <laughs> um, one couple, shout out to one of our earlier films um, about Tom and Sarah who live in the Coromandel and a tiny house they're still living there in a different tiny house on the land but they've had this relationship with the landowners for i don't know 10 12 years now and you know they're raising their family there and the landowners are getting older and they're kind of it's just like a beautiful example of how it can work it comes with its own challenges it's much easier to just buy your house and you know live alone and not have to talk to anybody <laughs> um but then i don't think that's the kind of they're not the kind of skills we need for the future either. We need to learn how to get along with each other if we're going to thrive in the future or today, <laughs> really. So, um, yeah, exploring different land sharing arrangements is uh, something I see for me going forward and trying to cultivate that sense of belonging and um, groundedness while still being mobile in my van, which I'm currently fitting out as my like filmmaking rig because I still need to travel to make films but I want to I want to have a place to come back to that I know my community and I know the land that I'm living on mm -hmm. yeah nice you've got like such a large body of work now that is happened films and I'm thinking as you you offer that that small glimpse into someone else's life um that shout out to a previous film that you've made um I'm thinking of all those stories and examples that you can draw on 
of people living really radical templates, really alternative ways. Um, are there any that that spring to mind when you think of people just doing shit really, really differently? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, everybody we've made a film with, I've taken something from and found inspiring. Um, otherwise, there wouldn't have been a film made. <laughs> but yeah, there are a few few characters, a um, few people that really uh, stay with me and I think about a lot. And um, uh, Artist's family, Megan Patrick and Woody uh, here in Dalesford are a uh, huge inspiration. Ever since filming with them back in 2017, we made a film called Creatures of Place about their life and um, ever since then I've it's been like how they live is kind of what I'm working towards basically it's like the standard of it's like the lighthouse in the distance of like oh okay that's what I want that's something to look forward to and I can see that um, there's a long way there but you have to learn the recorder for a start <laughs> yeah gotta play an instrument yeah yeah um, but like having having them as friends I feel so lucky that I do get to call them friends and I do get to see them regularly and um have them a part of my life because they're just a constant inspiration just there it's not just how they're living so radically and growing most of their own food and they don't have a car you know it's also their their commitment to their values and ethics and also just their integrity to what they believe in. It's just, I find it so inspiring and I don't know. Um, I've, I've met many other people like that that have that level of integrity and um, and also just joy in how they live as well. They're just lovely people and a constant source of inspiration. And I know they have been for so many people as well. Like That's one of our most viewed films. It still does really well on YouTube. And I know why, because they're bloody amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Being in their orbit in person feels really surreal and there is no discrepancy between how it feels to be around them in real life versus how I've seen them show up in their various, their own writings and work and then the documentaries and podcasts and you know, creations of others. They're so genuine and, as you said, that backbone of integrity and they're like joyfully puritanical about things like there's no um sense of you know snobbery or permaculture elitism but they are very very wedded to their values and principles and then it generates all the stories and things that they share as well like traveling around for free enriches their life in so many ways even if it is really bloody inconvenient mm, yeah 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 definitely recommend reading their book of their travels up north on their bikes um, the art of free travel it's called um, yeah yeah they're just constant sources of, of inspiration for me and as as well like here at Meliodora Sue and David um, same as well live live so simply live have contributed so much to their community and the world with what they how they live and um, David's writing and things and, and just obviously the permaculture concept um but yeah, there have been many people. I'll give a shout out to the Guytons in uh, the bottom of the South Island in New Zealand is uh, Robin and Robert Guyton. They uh, have a now 30-year-old food forest. And ever since filming there, I was like, I want a food forest. Like, I just love that model and the way they've gone about it in creating it so wildly and not managed in more like an orchard or anything. It's like, it's totally wild and evolving 
and um and they grow more wild with it as well it's just like it's amazing kind of dynamic between them and the forest and so if that's like one day a vision as well is, is having a food forest and just being part of this forest that I've helped create so you've completed two projects that trend massively online on YouTube at least tiny homes and tiny home building and also van life and van fitting retrofitting I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you learned building a tiny home and then also what you're tinkering with at the moment which looks like a pretty pretty radical van setup of your own mm-hmm. yeah so um Building the tiny house in New Zealand uh, where Antoinette's now living, is uh, that was like a two-year process and it was really challenging but it was so rewarding at the same time to... to we didn't build the whole thing, we built uh, the interior but we were part of the, the management of the whole build, of course. And trying to do it as ethically as possible was really interesting of just how hard it is. <laughs> Um, I feel like we did pretty pretty well in using a lot of local materials, natural stains and oils and paints and natural timbers. But, you know, in the beginning I was having visions of like, oh, we'd do it like 80% recycled materials and um, maybe we could not have electricity in there. We'd just have like, <laughs> or maybe just a fridge or something. Um, and then you start walking down that path and it's kind of like constant compromise from an initial vision. And you have to be okay with that, otherwise you give up. <laughs> and um, but in in the end, I'm I'm really proud of what what we created it is a, a natural home. It's a healthy home using you know the best materials we could use. Um, so that I think is a definite learning from that journey. Is like you have to have your vision of of living it, of building it as ethically as you'd like to, or you know aligned with your values. And then be okay with, um, you know, compromising on those because you can only do so much in the system that we live in. Uh, even though you, if you'd like to do it a different way and working with other people as well, like you have to, you know, we worked with builders who had their own opinions on things, like they didn't want to use secondhand windows because of various reasons. Uh, and so, yeah, lots of kind of compromises, but also learnings of just like a building I really enjoy building and I think if I wasn't a filmmaker I'd probably do like natural carpentry or something uh I love working with wood and learning those skills and measuring and yeah seamless cuts yeah <laughs> right angles and um and all that good stuff and so that, that was a lot of fun learning more of those skills and now I'm transferring that to uh building out of van I've just bought a, a big Ford Transit van that I'm converting into my home at the moment and um it'll continue to be my home for the short term and uh adventure like film vehicle and going forward because I need a setup to get around in to make films uh so I'm going into that as well as like similar ethics of trying to do it as many recycled materials as possible and when I can't do that buying like the least like non, non, non-toxic materials or, um, or ethically sourced where I can. And there's always compromises and there have been already with, um, with working in a van. And, um, but there are, you know, something like I'm insulating it with wool, 100% sheep's wool. And so that feels really good. But the wool was grown in New Zealand, manufactured in the States and sold here. So there's all these challenges with any material you find. There's never, unless you kind of, 
produce it yourself or you know someone in your community producing it, there's going to be some compromise or challenge with that material, whether it is the cost. And that's the thing. If you want to do it well by quality materials, it costs a lot more. Uh, and it's harder to find a lot of the time than just going straight to Bunnings and getting anything made of MDF or, you know, just plastic crap and doing it, um, which, you know, sometimes you have to as well. Sometimes, you know, you run out of money and just have to do that. But because the van is so small, I can I can prioritize good materials and take my time and try to do it as, as well as I can uh, to be my home for the moment. And... Um, and then maybe one day my base to then build a tiny house out of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I really enjoy breaking up working at the computer with building. Um, so both Antoinette and I are working three days a week at Happen Films at the moment. Um, we have worked full time mostly over the last you know, few years. But I really wanted to have enough time to put into practice the things that we're making films about. Like I don't want, yeah, like I said earlier, I don't just want to make films about this stuff I want to live it and living it takes time so if I'm working five days a week then there's the weekend where I kind of want to relax or see friends and then when do I get to make bread or preserve stuff or forage or you know I want to learn to hunt and fish and do all this stuff or or volunteer on people's properties and things and learn from them so having this balance of work and the rest of life is really important and you know living simply enables that not needing a huge amount of money each week as well um yeah allows me to do that mm-hmm. do you think that's the trick um lowering your overhead so you can reclaim that time to indulge those um things that are close to your heart yeah i think that's probably like yeah the biggest bit of advice is is to probably if you want to live more simply and you want to do more of these things yourself and be a, a bit more self-sufficient or community sufficient is you need time to do it and if you don't have to work as much you're going to have a lot more time to instead of buying bread you can make it yourself so you're not needing to earn the money to do that um if you're eating better you'll probably have to go to the doctor less and need less medications and things that you're going to have to pay for so you're kind of swapping out doing one thing to earn the money to buy it to just like cutting out the that middle process and just going straight to doing it yourself. And then you get all the benefits of it's better for you. You got to enjoy doing it. Um, You're not some just like kind of factory robot doing one task (laughs) for most of your life. I think, I don't think that's how humans or it's how we haven't, haven't lived until modern times of, um, of that factory model and the nine to five work week where we get specialized at one thing and then we do that most of our lives, um, which is great for the economy and you get a lot of shit done and you can make a lot of stuff. <laughs> but in terms of like human well-being or even fulfillment, a lot of people aren't fulfilled in their work. And it, it probably part of it is because of the repetitive nature of it and the lack of time to do other things that bring meaning to life outside of work. Mm, yeah, that's a really awesome thread. And maybe it's not even the repetition so much because a lot of the so-called menial tasks that we engage in to to keep our life churning and the fires burning are necessary and pleasurable if you have time to do them and kind of sink into those, you know, the floor sweeping or the churning of the butter or the chopping of the cabbage. Like that's, that can be a joy. Um, I'm thinking of maybe it was Alain de Botton talked about, you know, if the, if the end of the world is nigh, like let it, 
find me hanging the washing out and, you know, um, washing the dishes. I think what he's saying is all the things that we've um, maligned or kind of cast aside as the, the work of peasants and not the things of an involved human, that is the work and that is the, the source of meaning and it can be. Yeah. Mm, yeah, because there, yeah, there are so many benefits to doing more things yourself, not just for sustainability reasons or trying to lower your carbon footprint, although that's a valid reason to do something. Um, I think narrowing what you do to carbon emissions is, I mean, we could have a whole kind of discussion about the problem with this fixation on carbon and the, the, narrow, the narrow-mindedness of solutions that come out of that. But it can be similar to your own life of like, oh, no, nah, it's not worth carbon-wise to do this. I might as well do that. It's, well, what about the joy you get to do it? Maybe you could make it and trade with a neighbor. Like there's so many benefits that we don't even think about or maybe even we'll know by doing these things in our lives. And I think that's, I really have a problem <laughs> with um, people thinking that like what we do in our life doesn't matter and that every every solution relies in something top down and large scale and i understand where that thinking comes from because the solution the issues we're facing are massive and so of course the solutions have to be massive and it become it comes from our culture as well of our industrial society of like big single solutions to a problem when you know permaculture principle of small and slow solutions just resonates so much with me and so many people, and I think that's um, that's where we have to go, because those small and slow solutions, I think, are is what is going to get us through the future, and it starts with doing simple things like preserving some carrots you grew, <laughs> or or even just going for a walk in the bush. Like if you don't even do that because you don't have time you might think, oh, how's that going to save the world? But if we kind of push everything through this filter of how it's going to save the world, we'd probably never do anything because, and I've probably done this in the past as well. And it's very easy to of think kind of trying to calculate impact in your mind of like, should I do this or that? And you can't imagine how actions in your life are going to impact you or the people around you. So I think starting small is like, it's where we have to start and it's where, the, the real solutions are I think yeah and slowing down does a lot of um, has a lot of benefits if you are talking about you know if you are making the calculation slowing our pace means we just use less and sometimes I speak to friends who are on you know crazy health kicks and stuff and they are like running a bunch or doing you know heaps of exercise and burning way more fuel and then eating more I'm like you could just do less of everything and then you're not using if you're looking at that as to, in terms of like consumption and inputs and outputs and stuff, like there's so much to be said by pairing things back and doing things slower and being smaller because that in itself I see is activism. You know, going for a walk, if that's your source of entertainment or like watching the chickens or binging, you know, the next episode of Goat TV, it's like you're not using anything in that, but you are giving stuff, giving something to yourself. Yeah, living more slowly. I've got this real resistance to... And it was, it was part of what got me thinking differently about the world as well, coming out of high school and looking at <laughs> what I was going to do. Just, yeah, working that nine to five job to, you know, pay a mortgage and just like the pace of life and how much you have to work, it just didn't appeal to me. 
and um and I just like I think it's just getting quicker and quicker the pace of life and especially now with interest rates going up and people's financial situations becoming more difficult people have to work more and more and it's like where does this end people working seven days a week and there's that phenomenon in Japan where people just die on the train because they're like overworked and it's like is that where we're heading because the machine can never the machine of our society can never be fed enough that we have to keep growing and growing and producing more and more and we have to keep working more and more to do that it's just a constant cycle of consuming the earth and us as people and so the world would be a much better place like you know the whole thing of doing a four-day work week that's coming online great like do more of that like if we just produce less stuff if people worked less that would have a massive like carbon reduction if we're going to look at it like that or resource just produce less stuff that's a great place to start yeah and even like we're speaking earlier about health challenges and I see a lot more chronic health problems and people um, feeling like they can't achieve in the way they want to because of some limitation around their energy levels and I wonder if there's there's a piece for me or something in there for me around these challenges like the cost of living, the the fatigue that we're all feeling. There's something to be attuned to and listened to and actually reframed as a gift in all of these these like all of the intersecting crises, maybe there is um, the opportunity to surrender to them in a way and actually respond rather than trying to kind of go into battle and solve. We can actually, yeah, have that like surrender that then kind of diffuses the problem, Mm -hmm. you know, like even if we have, we have this um, limitation placed on our, our energy reserves and our state of health, well, maybe that does mean we can't all work like robots anymore. So by listening to that, we actually start to change the systems because they're just not possible. It's just not possible to sustain. It's just not possible to make the money to buy the dream that we think we all want. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm innately a quitter or something. I like the idea of of, of quitting some of these these delusions and aspirations and expectations that we have of ourselves and what life should be and like giving in and letting that be the medicine. Mm, yeah. Listening to our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like, that's why. Mm. And I think it's cultural as well. It's not just economic. The idea of the hardworking person is part of our cultural myth and it's very, it's really valued. Um, and you can see that with, <laughs> like our generation millennials kind of wanting to work less and have more quality of life and not really caring about money and um the difference between that ethic of like the boomer generation who who you know worked to provide for their family for this kind of different vision of like the american dream or the australian dream or whatever and that's kind of fading now with um our generation and younger because we're in a different world than we were when the boom generation was in the workforce and but that ethic has stayed that like yeah work hard and that's like what it means to be like a decent human being there's some real like interesting identity thing tied to work and people tie their life to it and a lot of the time is probably to try to avoid other areas of their life 
um, they focus so much on work and that's how they get value and like a feeling of self-worth. And so kind of unpacking a lot of this stuff in our own psychology is part of the equation as well, not just like monetarily simplifying our lives. It's unpacking some of these ideas of like what a good life is, what a meaningful life is, what can I contribute to the world? Because all these things still exist within everybody. We all want to have meaning and feel valued and feel like we're contributing. And currently that we get a meaning, meaning from buying a lot of stuff. We get meaning from like going up the corporate ladder, getting promotions and, you know, a lot of material-based rewards, whereas we can get meaning through giving to community or feeling belonging. And I think that's part of our cultural transition as well is that change of values and vision of what a good life is. And that's the kind of heart of the filmmaking as well is like it's throwing out ideas of like different ways of living, like this is what the future could be or how about this or what resonates and kind of just seeing what we could do differently. Mm-hmm. How would we like to close this conversation? Maybe a, double, a double-headed a double question around what you hope for the future and what you see as realistic, what is coming down the pipeline in your eyes, but also what is possible. Mm. I, s- I spend a lot of time thinking about the future and have done over the whole course of filmmaking and and I feel really lucky that I've been able to have that mental space to be able to do that and I've been able to interact with people like making a simpler way interviewing people like David Holmgren Nicole Foss Helena Norberg Hodge you know Ted Trainer, like all these people who I just got this like kind of first-hand <laughs> education about like what was happening in the world and so that gave me this kind of basis to then think about a lot of this stuff and um yeah it's definitely I've definitely gone up and down had some periods of just feeling you know quite low about the direction humanity's heading in um and I still think it's it still feels like that actually and it's I don't if you're paying attention I think it's kind of hard not to if you care about what's happening in the world it's and you're seeing species going extinct and hearing about how climate change is going to affect 2 billion people in the poorest part of the world. It's hard not to think like, um, feel low about that. And I've definitely sat in that too long sometimes of just that kind of despair. The COVID period brought that on as well. Partly because I thought, oh, maybe this will be a moment that like we kind of collectively get our shit together. <laughs> it might be a bit of like a wake up moment. I think a lot of people might have been thinking that. And then when that didn't eventuate and everyone was just trying to get back to normal, that kind of, yeah, I found that quite depressing. Um, but I am an optimistic person, but I still hold this kind of like, yeah, worry about the future in a lot of ways, but also have a lot of um, faith in people. And I think we can create a really beautiful future and present. I mean, this is stuff we need to be doing now. Like, I feel like we're in collapse, if you want to call it collapse. It'll be interesting to see in a few decades from now what 
historical moment the pandemic played. Maybe that was a point at which everything just started, you know, resource use started to go down. Um, yeah, who knows? Like maybe that was a bit of a, a shift, a turning point in the world because um, things feel different after the pandemic, I think. So we'll see how that <laughs> unfolds. But I feel just, yeah, seeing what's happening in the economy, seeing what's happening around the world, climate-wise, environmental-wise, like we're in collapse of what we've come to know, have known as normal. And a lot of these systems we've relied on are crumbling. And, you know, the healthcare system is one of those. And that's quite worrying of people waiting months to get surgeries or not even be able to get seen like these or even the education system, like hearing from teachers and things of how that's like not working for kids now either. It just feels like a lot of the systems that worked for a while are now aren't suited for the world we're in. And so that's why I feel like we're in a, a collapse kind of stage. And this might take decades to unfold. And I don't think it's going to be some like overnight zombie apocalypse scenario which is like it's a it's a fantasy thing that probably comes out of like <laughs> movies and I don't know cultural ideas around that Mad Max kind of thing I think I see the future kind of like how Nate Hagen's to shout out another podcast <laughs> um, in his podcast The Great Simplification that term is what he describes uh, as this process of collapse of not everything turning to a zombie apocalypse but like a uh, a simplification of the world and the systems because of resource constraints and pollution con limits the limits to growth and all, all these other planetary boundaries we're reaching those now we've passed a few all these things are starting to pinch now and um i think yeah things are going to unfold in, in in stages things might get a bit better for a while but ultimately the the curve of growth is on the way down and that's going to have huge implications for how we live um, at, at the same time as we're probably going to be facing more pandemics in the future and all these other challenges, social challenges and things. So there is a lot to kind of think about when considering the, the painting the picture of like the world we're in. But I think what keeps me going, what makes me feel inspired still and hopeful is we've created these systems so we can create new ones. And I've seen, I've met enough people and I've seen enough projects to feel like it's just there. Like we can just create, like as Charles Eisenstein puts it, a more beautiful world if we decide to. And if we get our shit together, work together, um, I don't believe governments are going to swing in and solve all these problems with us because they're, they're part of this system and no one person or group of evil people is in control of the world systems we're all in this super organism, this machine, and there are competing interests of business and government and things. And I think we as communities and individuals have to do our best to build the world we want to see now. So when these systems start to crumble and people who don't get it at the moment can see an alternative and get involved and do it themselves. And I think that's how I the future will unfold is it'll be challenging but I think it can be beautiful mm. we just have to build it yeah thank you so much for sharing stories from the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible I feel like that is happen films so like the heart and soul in your work is just yeah 
so clear. Um, so thank you so much for doing that and then also being here today and chatting with me. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Katie. It's been a pleasure. It was great to be able to ask Jordan so many questions, to hear his inner workings and creative logic, because he and Antoinette are physically invisible in the documentaries they produce, which in an age of selfies and cameras turned back on ourselves is really rather refreshing. If you don't already, be sure to subscribe to Happen Films on YouTube because they actually have a collaborative series coming out really soon, like in the next couple of weeks, which is, to me, similar to an advent calendar for uplifting content because they're going to be releasing a new film each month. It's called Something Beautiful for the World and you'll find the trailer and all the info on their channel. If you're willing and able, you can also support them on Patreon. Patreon is a sweet way to pay creatives like Jordan and Antoinette for their unconventional but utterly necessary work of restoring human culture, which should be a career but isn't. I subscribe for $8.50 a month, which is less than the price of a bag of mushroom compost. And today, I've actually been re-listening to a very animated couchside interview that I conducted with Beck Lowe quite a while back now. And Beck is everyone's favourite permaculture teacher. Zero apologies or caveats. She's just bloody amazing. She shared so many gems and so much wisdom that I really can't believe I've sat on this chat for so long. So... If you're up for a deep dive into tending the land as a single lady, leaning into the role of livestock grim reaper and letting your feet roam wild and free, come back next Monday. Thanks for listening. Risk you later.